Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. Hello, welcome back everybody to the podcast. Great to be back. Been a little while, but I think we've got a very good topic to get back into the fray with. I'm here today with Rich Hamill. You've heard him on the podcast in the past, a colleague of mine, and he has been focused on, among other things, environmental justice. So it's been a little bit of time since we talked about EJ, EJ regulation, EJ policy on the podcast, and the activity is coming fast and furious. So we thought that now would be a good time to revisit some of the latest and greatest and talk a little bit about how folks are going about preparing and planning for EJ policy and regulations as they continue to evolve very, very quickly. We knew at the beginning of the current EPA uh, and federal administration that EJ was one of the two major priorities. And that has certainly come through in terms of the, uh, I'll say the level of activity of the administration. It hasn't necessarily come through, and Rich, I'll look for your take on this, hasn't necessarily come through in pure regulation quite yet, although we're going to talk a little bit about that and how that might change here coming up. But certainly a lot of activity, a lot of things that continue to indicate this remains a top priority for the administration. Rich, I'll turn it over to you for just a quick State of the Union on that that level of priority they're placing on it and just any insights you have before we get into some specific topics. Yeah, thanks, Colin. I, I think this year has been one where we've started to see real action around environmental justice as opposed to a lot of planning uh, as was done in the first year of the Biden administration. Um, most recently, we saw the creation of the Office of Environmental Justice and External Civil Rights at EPA. Uh, and that office is being held at the same level as those offices that have been there for a long time around each uh, media, like the Office of Air and Radiation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of a signal from the administration that you know EJ is held in the same level of importance as those media offices that have been around for such a long time. We saw with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, an estimated $40 billion of direct funding related to helping overburdened communities. Um, We've seen millions and millions of dollars being focused towards programs around fence line monitoring and hyperlocal monitoring, you know, within communities around you know, assessing what are the real impacts in these overburdened communities, uh, a definite focus on enforcement, you know, be it investigations under civil rights Title VI of uh, different agency programs or in court cases where environmental justice is starting to get considered as um, something that might warrant halting a project uh, altogether, as we've seen uh, recently in Louisiana and other places. Thanks for that rundown, Rich. And I think I want to start out with the regulatory front, or at least the upcoming regulatory front. We've been hearing for several months now from folks within EPA and from EPA directly about cumulative impact analyses 
And uh, I know that EPA has been working on a rulemaking around cumulative impact analyses. I'm wondering if you could give us an update on maybe where does that stand, at least as far as we know, and just a little bit more about painting the picture of what that is and what that will mean, because that's going to be pretty significant if this were to, to come through. Yeah, we've been waiting for the guidance for a while. It was supposed to come out at the end of 2021, and we still haven't seen it. Uh, the equity action plan dictated that they want to have it fully in place by the end of or, or September of 2023, so a little less than a year from now. Um, but we think that will really be the first federal rulemaking around environmental justice that may impact permitting and um, what you need to do to keep a project moving forward if it's near a community that's determined to be overburdened. What it is in general is a assessment of not just you know, each pollutant individually like we normally do in the air modeling world, for example, but the cumulative impact of all the pollutants that a facility might emit, uh, as well as those around it, um, wastewater, toxics, and a measure of the socioeconomic side on the community itself. Like what are the stressors that community already has? Health risk. Um, how burdened with environmental impacts is that community already and is it able to take more, so on and so forth. And I think one of the reasons that it's taken so long to get that guidance together is they want to create a scoring system that would identify, you know, what would trigger a cumulative impact analysis or, or additional requirements. And while we always can get a pretty good handle on emissions and things like that, how do you create a scorecard that also includes these social kind of, I don't know, soft elements, if you will, and match that up with the, um, the hard numbers of this many tons of this is emitted and so on and so forth into a scorecard that actually works. And does it work across the country or does it have to be broken into different locations based on certain conditions and so on and so forth? Rich, you're mentioning guidance. Is this something where they're going to put out some guidance to be followed by rulemaking or how is that, how's that going to work? Or do we know? Yeah. The expectation is they're going to put out guidance and uh, whether that includes specific requirements or if that leads to rulemaking afterwards, not sure. Uh, but again, they want, they want whatever requirements are going to be made around cumulative impact analyses to be in place by September, 2023. So they have to get a move on. Uh, I, I do know that, not too long ago, the Science Advisory Board was asking for public comment on what kind of research they need to do to support cumulative impact analyses, which would suggest they may not be that close to being ready. But uh, again, they say it's coming out soon. Rich, when I think about this rule, I think about air toxics and just what other folks have experienced within their individual states and this could be very different for folks because, like you said, it's not just I think I think we might be used to looking at things on a pollutant by pollutant basis. And this really combines everything together and then does sort of a multi pathway. It sounds like a potential multi pathway right. risk assessment. So if you're in a state that has multi pathway risk assessments, maybe you have some familiarity with what EPA is going for. But like you said, Rich, combining in these uh, socioeconomic layers to this is, is a, a challenge that I guess they're working through. Yeah. And I think we're going to see, uh, you know, most likely they'll come out with that and then we'll see lawsuits right around 
you know, you didn't include this stressor or this stressor is weighted too yeah. much, so on and so forth. Uh, but yeah, I mean, some of the states do have have some methods to analyze multi-pathway toxic impacts. You know, California uh, being the most noted with their they have their HARP model that you know assesses all the different uh, pathways. But uh, what exactly we're going to see here um, is uh, still a bit of an unknown. All right, so we continue to monitor that, particularly relative to its its implications on new projects and capital projects and things like that. So stay tuned and we'll certainly talk about cumulative impacts on the podcast in the coming months. But Rich, let's move on to tools. You and I have talked about um, EJ tools here in the past. Uh, I want to talk to you about EJ Screen 2.1. And there's actually a connection between EJ Screen 2.1 and cumulative impacts. And I was wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah, so the newest version of EJ Screen, which is version 2.1, came out on October 11th, so just a little less than a month ago. And one of the things that they've added in there is this concept of threshold maps. So EJ Screen, of course, has 12 different environmental justice indexes that take the environmental indexes, which are the same 12 categories, and then weigh them against social uh, economic demographics, the demographics index, they call it, to create or rank, I guess you would we'd say, the uh, communities versus the national average and so on and so forth. But these threshold maps are kind of a, a way to get the tool towards assessing cumulative impacts. And this is something we're seeing kind of across the board is uh, even though the guidance isn't around, a lot of the new tools and, and other things are starting to support that idea of how do we get to cumulative impact? So with the threshold maps, you can say, I want to see any census tract that has more than four of these uh, EJ indexes over a certain percentile, like maybe the 80th percentile, which we often use to identify if a community is overburdened or not, um, you know, or I want to see how many have six or two or whatever, and just allow you to kind of map multiple indexes on top of each other and see what that looks like in the area that you're interested in. That's a, a new feature to that tool that wasn't available before. We're also seeing some other tools that, again, are starting to focus towards that cumulative uh, risk. There's the Environmental Justice Index tool that was released by CDC and a number of other organizations jointly that tries to assess cumulative health risk um, without thinking about things like emissions and stuff, but just cumulative health risk and specific areas. Uh, and EPA has another tool, the OAQPS is working with that kind of layers um, air quality data over EJ screen data, again, to try to assess, in their case, the really the impact of toxics in PM 2.5 and ozone. So all these tools are starting to float down the road of how do we assess cumulative impacts. Thanks, Rich. And if yeah, if you're at a facility and there is a tool out there, which there are several now, it is critically important to understand what's being presented in those tools around your operations. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end when we get into some just practical advice and, and some of the things that folks are doing in terms of assessing these tools. But I appreciate that update. Okay, Rich, I want to talk a little bit about some committee recommendations that EPA has has received actually related to the Clean Water Act and the monitoring approaches that are used by the Clean Water Act around total maximum daily loads. And how can that approach, that same approach, be 
integrated into the Clean Air Act. So very interesting uh, recommendations that are coming out of some of the some of the committees, and they could have big implications if EPA were to take these recommendations and start to run with them. So maybe you could fill us in a little bit on on what those recommendations are and what some of this could mean. Yeah, and these are fairly onerous uh, to industry, in my opinion. So the agency we're talking about is the NEJAC, or National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. And uh, they recently sent a recommendation letter to EPA on uh, a transformative approach uh, with their air monitoring program. Again, as you said, to match kind of the Clean Water Act's total maximum daily load program with the idea of assessing total cumulative impacts on overburdened communities from a facility. So again, we're down that road of cumulative impacts. And what they're suggesting is uh, moving the monitoring around these facilities upstream, as they're calling it, to the point where they might actually be collecting the data on site within the fence line, as opposed to outside the fence line, almost as if you have um, SEMs on individual sources at facilities, these monitors would really be placed with the idea of tracking a specific source. Um, and not only would they be tracking the specific source, the idea would be that they would be uploading the monitored data, the monitoring concentrations up to websites in real time so that that data could be accessed by uh, both agencies and the public and also triggering push notifications if that source were to violate its permit or uh, create a monitored uh, violation of the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. So pretty pretty onerous and it requires a lot of context because, uh, you know, an instant concentration that's in excess of a National Ambient Air Quality Standard may not actually be violating that standard, which might be a 24-hour average period, so on and so forth. And also, you know, there would be a lot of implications about, well, how do you really cite these monitors and and, and all of that? Now, whether NEJAC or, um, will actually get these recommendations accepted by the EPA in whole or in part you know, remains to be seen. They did recently have their recommendation letter for how the uh, PFAS roadmap might be revised, uh, be mostly accepted by EPA. So whether that might be you know, happen again or not, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, one other part that's interesting about those recommendations is they recommend that sort of a reverse in policy that a complaint from the public should now be assumed correct and the burden placed on industry to prove that the complaint that was made uh, isn't valid or wasn't their source or, or whatever. So it's kind of a, a reverse into a bit of a guilty until you prove yourself innocent kind of model. Rich, how can folks sort of keep track of what's going on with these recommendations and maybe how they're being acted upon by EPA, other than, of course, listening to this podcast and looking at, looking at other sources of information? I, I guess, where, where is all of this sort of occurring? And, and, and is there anything you can share with folks in terms of how, how, to, how to maybe um, monitor, no pun intended, some of this type of activity? Yeah, well, of course, we we watch this all very carefully uh, on the various news feeds and other places, and we participate in the various public hearings that have, are held on a fairly regular basis by 
again, the NEJAC and also the WEJAC, which is the White House Environmental Justice Action Council. And we are in touch with all of the states and we track all that very carefully. And that's something that, you know, we do provide as a service to some of our clients. But I think uh, it's, you know, important to um, just keep an eye on the news feeds, attend those meetings, uh, know what your state is doing, know what your state maybe isn't doing, but how EPA is pressuring them because that does affect the behavior of some of the states in terms of environmental justice. And just, you know, generally keep your ears open to all these different uh, kind of sources of information because it is coming fast and furious from a lot of different directions. Some of those recommendations, Rich, remind me of the uh, Purple Air website and and some of the presentation of that data, that ambient monitoring data to the public, except now being applied at a specific facility level. So quite, quite, a, quite a recommendation. We'll see where it goes. Okay, I want to talk a little bit, Rich, about, I would say, some specific recent, um, these aren't regulatory per se, but these are decisions. In some cases, facility-specific decisions, SIP-specific decisions, and some uh, investigations and resulting fallout that that EPA has been undertaking around Title VI. So there's just... Like you said, we're seeing more of this activity right now where there's things that are actually occurring out there on the ground. And, you know, what what are these things and maybe what what conclusions can we draw from them about how to prepare? So I just want to go through a few of them. Um, there was a, a decision around EJ and and permitting around Formoso that, that recently got put out. Can you expand on that and what that could mean? Yeah, so Formosa Plastic Group, um, which was a conglomeration of several chemical companies, um, was proposing to create a, a large complex, multi-billion dollar complex near Welcome, Louisiana, which is an overburdened community as far as uh, any tool will tell you. I mean, they, the, the numbers are very high. And a Louisiana court um, rejected 14 air permits that had been issued by the Louisiana Department of Environmental quality or LDEQ on three grounds. Um, one of them was uh, environmental justice, and I'll, I'll come back to that part of it in a sec. The other two parts were related to what they described as Clean Air Act violations by the agency, one being the use of the SIL or the significant impact level as a de minimis to say, um, you know, in our modeling, we see some violations of a standard but because our contribution to that is below this de minimis sill, we don't cause or contribute to that violation. And that's been a long-standing modeling approach for my entire career, essentially 20 years, uh, to show that you know we're not contributing to this problem. Uh, and then there was a complaint that a cumulative assessment of toxics impacts from not only the proposed facility, but others nearby, as that's a very heavily industrialized area, hadn't been done. And uh, that's not part of the Louisiana toxics program and really something that's not typically done in the permitting process. And the reason those two kind of technical reasons are important is that the rejection of the permits on environmental justice side, the EJ side, if there's not a policy or, or specific permitting requirement in place, um, can be a little on the squishy side, right? It's, it's a little bit qualitative. And the decision pointed to 
the LDEQ conclusion that the community wouldn't be um, disparatively impacted by these environmental uh, impacts was based on the use of the SIL. Essentially, LDEQ said, well, the SIL shows that they're not causing or contributing, therefore they're okay. And then the court said, well, because your EJ analysis uh, relied on the use of the SILs and the cause or contribute, and we essentially reject that it's acceptable to use the SILs, therefore the EJ analysis is not acceptable and your permit's rejected on that, uh, on that grounds. So uh, Louisiana is appealing, but, uh, and this particular uh, project's been in litigation for years already, uh, and it, no doubt it's gonna continue to be for quite some time to come. It'll be interesting to see where this goes because if an agency can't use established screening levels that, that have been used and, and generally accepted for a very long time, what do they use? And I imagine that's part of some aspect of Louisiana's appeal, correct? It, it becomes a big problem. And I, <laughs> yeah, I, I've already seen uh, cases uh, away from Louisiana where that has come into question. I mean, we've used the SIL for, as I said, my entire career as a way to show that you're below the de minimis level. And uh, there's another state where I'm working on a project where we got SIL related comments from from EPA, although not this kind exactly. And the state agency was wondering how the Formosa decision might impact uh, EPA's reaction to our answer on those comments. And we also have another project where uh, an organization that is um, issuing public comments against the issuance of a permit have already referenced the Formosa Plastic Group case, you know, only a month or so after it's happened as a, you know, SILs are illegal to use, you can't use them. So how that ends up going in the in the future remains to be seen. The um, the court itself actually referenced the guidance that leaves the use of sills up to the states in theory. So that would mean that you know it doesn't. It's not like a moratorium on sills necessarily. But on the other hand, the court is saying LDQ you can't use sills for this, which supposedly is is something that they're allowed to determine on their own. Rich, I think I may have incorrectly stated that this was an EPA decision. It sounds like it's more of a court decision. Where does EPA fit into this right now? Um, EPA is, well, so EPA followed up by, um, they were already putting a lot of pressure on Louisiana. So on okay. the one hand, they're investigating whether the overall permitting program for Louisiana uh, violates the Civil Rights Title VI Act by not specifically uh, spelling out how they are going to evaluate environmental justice. Um, the other part of that is they recently issued a letter of concern to Louisiana uh, saying, you know, essentially um, pushing, making some suggestions to LDQ as to how they might uh, advance environmental justice while US EPA is in the process of doing this Title VI investigation as sort of a what they're calling an informal resolution agreement. In other words, show progress towards uh, assessing environmental justice. And that would probably be a positive aspect of, of how uh, EPA finds the LDQ in their investigation. So they're basically suggesting, um, you know, you should do a cumulative impact analysis for the Formosa Plastics Group and also another project um, at Denka Performance Elastomers in St. John the Baptist Parish. And, um, uh, you know, we'll basically look 
positively upon that. Um, one thing that was really quite interesting in that letter is they also suggested that LDEQ might want to look into relocating an elementary school near the Denka plastics plant as part of their uh, mitigation of the environmental justice concerns. That's a, a pretty interesting uh, and new approach that EPA is suggesting in that letter. So EPA getting very involved here with some of the states. So, Rich, you mentioned the Title VI investigations that are going on. Sounds like there's activity around that in Louisiana. Um, Texas and Michigan are two other states where maybe something similar is happening. Can you speak to to those two, either similarities or differences with what's going on in Louisiana? Sure. So Title VI, uh, you know, for anyone who doesn't know what that means, is um, – part of the Civil Rights Act that says that a government agency cannot knowingly or not knowingly take any kind of action or support a program that would potentially adversely affect overburdened communities more so than others. Um, so what EPA has been doing in order to pressure those states that maybe aren't taking environmental justice actions on their own or creating their own policy or rulemaking has been to pressure them. So there was a case in Michigan related to an asphalt plant and the siting of it where Michigan um, allowed the permit near an overburdened community. And uh, EPA is now investigating their permitting program as to whether or not the fact that they didn't really consider environmental justice is a violation of the Civil Rights Act. Michigan's response is, we have a very specific uh, set of permitting requirements laid out in our laws, and we are legally bound to give a permit to a facility or an applicant that meets all of those requirements. So they're saying legally we have to. Uh, so that's kind of one of the ways that EPA you know, pressures these states. And same thing in Texas over a couple of different programs. Um, and it's interesting because on the one hand, these states are pushing back. And on the other hand, Michigan has rolled out their own EJ tool now. And Texas just announced a public outreach requirement for permit um, applicants in certain parts of Texas near overburdened communities. So, you know, they're certainly feeling the pressure and taking some action. Rich, what would be... There's probably no great answer to this question, but as EPA is looking at these, some of these decisions that are happening locally and they're evaluating specific state agencies and how they go about things, what shy of a uh, of an extremely enhanced public outreach process and a cumulative impact process like California has would be satisfactory? Or is that kind of the bar at this point for when EPA gets involved? <laughs> I'm not, I think EPA is very much in a, we'll know it when we see it mode. Okay. Got it. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I would advocate is, I mean, certainly getting to know your communities around your facility is important and having a relationship developed prior to when the draft permit for your new project is made public is important. Um, but also where there are opportunities and when there are state agencies that are saying, OK, we want an EJ analysis on this project because of X, Y, Z, even if they don't necessarily have those requirements in law, trying to uh, give them the answer rather than waiting for them to tell you what you have to do is, uh, you know, may work to your benefit. Right. Um, suggest we're going to take these three or four outreach steps. 
that will, you know, and do these other things to mitigate potential impacts from the project um, and seeing if the agency will agree with you uh, and work with you as opposed to having them say, well, we're going to want, you know, a fence line monitoring program for three years or something like that. That's expensive and, and, uh, you know, difficult to, to uh, roll out. It's probably the way to go. Makes sense. Rich, I want to talk about one other, I'll call it local situation with potential wider impacts, and then we'll get into some practical advice and recommendations. So EPA announced its intention to disapprove San Joaquin Valley's PM two and a half SIP, which then the 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 Air District subsequently withdrew. Um, maybe walk through that a bit, and and what was the basis for EPA's disapproval, and what does this mean bigger picture? Yeah, so this was an interesting one. Um, EPA originally announced their intention to approve the SIP in December, and the SIP is essentially San Joaquin Valley and the uh, California Air Resources Bureau or CARB, what their plan to get a certain part of of the uh, San Joaquin Valley's um, area that's currently non-attainment for PM 2.5 back into attainment. So they, uh, again, were going to approve it and then got some public comments that suggested that approval of that SIP might be a violation of the Civil Rights Act because it would potentially allow uh, overburdened communities in that non-attainment area. And the San Joaquin Valley has a very uh, high percentage of overburdened communities. There's a lot of poverty there, a lot of minority population. And um, so therefore they should reject it on that environmental justice grounds. And this is a bit hard to figure really, because if the, if the SIP has to put that area back into attainment by law, then how is that negatively impacting anyone is is kind of the question that pops into my head. Uh, and really the, the EJ basis of the complaint was that there were not, quote, necessary assurances that the SIP would be executed. But what exactly that means into what is a necessary assurance? And I mean, they have to, uh, in theory, they have to execute the SIP, right? So anyway, um, San Joaquin Valley and the CARB essentially sent a letter back to EPA saying, um, you haven't given us guidance about what these necessary assurances would actually be. Um, so we withdraw the SIP. And that immediately caused outrage amongst those same environmental justice groups that uh, had asked for the EPA to disapprove because it just pushes the whole process down the road a couple of years. So, you know, the question again is who's, who's actually benefiting here? The, um, the agencies now have a longer time to redevelop their SIP once they get guidance from EPA, but most likely that means that the air quality issues in that Valley are going to continue for another year or two unabated because of this whole process. So, you know, the question again is, is, is who benefits? And that was actually a question that was placed when I was at AWMA Louisiana a couple of weeks ago uh, during his keynote, uh, Dr. Brown, the secretary of the LDEQ was talking about the Title VI investigation saying, well, um, EPA could take away $25 million of the agency's funding. Well, who does that help if I have to lay off a whole bunch of inspectors 
or other staff who are trying to do their job to make sure that our industries are, you know, meeting their permit requirements and all that other stuff. And I think that's a, a fair question. Yeah, I get a theme from this, Rich, just the more we talk. And that's when you look at a process like this, it gets back to a piece of advice you shared a little bit earlier. Is that the way a stakeholder process works the best in the event of a project or a new facility is when the facility and the public and the, and the neighbors to the facility are the drivers behind the process. So that gets back to your point around getting to know your local community, getting to know your neighbors, educating them, connecting with them, educating them on upcoming projects, and, and really working together collaboratively to make sure that everybody knows uh, what's going on and everybody understands it. That's when things seem to work the best. Uh, they don't work as well when a number of different agencies get involved and, and, and there's a bunch of legal goings-ons uh, is what I'm gathering. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the things these tools can help with is, you know, if you look at it and you've got overburdened communities around you, you can drill down at the demographics and find out what are the triggers. And maybe that helps your public outreach approach, right? If it's um, really high unemployment, job fairs, employing um, locally where possible might be the right way to go. If it's a percentage of, of non-English speaking you know, what is the predominant language, making sure you communicate uh, in that language on any kind of required, you know, public notices, um, uh, so on and so forth. Um, you know, you can you can dig into the demographics and find out um, what might be the best approach. Rich, that's a good segue into my final question. Certainly a lot of activity going on. We'll revisit this in the coming months, but for right now, I want to make sure I get to what does what does this all mean? Um, we, we talked about some of the implications of each of these individually, but now looking at it through the lens of what are some things that I could do if I'm at a facility to prepare and to plan ahead? I know you've been helping folks with this, doing some of the things, looking at the tools and, and, and just putting some of that information together. What are some of the things you've been involved with and, and suggestions you have around, you know, how companies might best prepare and plan ahead? Yeah. So always being proactive instead of reactive is the kind of the, the overriding thing over any of these, but um, knowing what the uh, EJ footprint of your facilities is important um, where there are concerns, engaging the communities, critically important um, knowing what kind of public data is out there about your facility. So we, uh, when we help a company review their EJ footprint, we'll also look into the ECHO database, right? The database that has the um, violation and enforcement actions that have occurred around a, a facility and make sure they're correct because they're not always correct in there. Taking a look at the, um, the toxics inventories and making sure those are correct. Um, and making sure that you know what your emissions are at your facility, because if you get into um, some kind of um, dispute about emissions, most likely the uh, other side is going to have experts that have looked at what they believe your emissions are. And so you want to be able to refute that or, or confirm what yours are. Um, knowing what your state is up to in terms of policy and rulemaking, and also what pressures those states are under, because a lot of states that aren't really very active in terms of EJ are the ones that are getting pushed pretty hard by EPA, you know, on Title VI or, or whatever. 
to act. So know what the pressures are on them. And finally, try to be aware of, of other permit actions around your facilities that may not have anything to do with you, but what were the public comments when they went through their permit action? Were there EJ concerns? What are they and how could you address them if you get to the point where you're doing a project of your own? Rich, thanks so much for joining me. Good advice. Lots of activity. We will keep everybody posted in the coming months on everything that we're learning. And we're learning a lot just about every week on this topic. So, Rich, I appreciate it. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us, as always. Hope it was helpful. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.